What evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. (laughs) (laughs) This is the shadow. My hypnotic power, I've clouded your mind. (laughs) The shadow! Yes, the shadow. I'll be there in every empty room, as inevitable as your guilty conscience. Because her name is Justice, and her revenge for your mockery will be death. Agents of the Shadow, report! For we return for yet another fantastic darksome installment of the Shadowcast, the only podcast on the internet devoted exclusively to the immortal exploits of Pulp's ageless avenger, the Shadow. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been going down prominent firsts in the history of the Shadow's exploits in pulps, in film, in comic, in serials, and (laughs) everything in between, of course. And naturally, that would lead us to the very first film appearance of the Shadow. Today, we are going to cover the much maligned, and today, more often than not, considered obscure effort featuring one Rod LaRocque, a black-and-white film debut for The Shadow that debuted, I believe, the very same year as the Orson Welles incarnation of The Shadow radio show. I speak naturally of the excellently titled, but that's about the only thing that's excellent about it, The Shadow Strikes. And that's actually not fair. As you'll see today, I've returned to The Shadow Strikes. I watched it several years ago, and I remember being profoundly, professionally unimpressed with the end results. But in reviewing it, I must say, I came away with a slightly more positive appraisal. There's a number of things, while this film, I think, in the overall is a bit of a failure, it must be said, there's a few high points and some things that I actually think a modern Shadow film adaptation could probably take from this that um, actually are, are fairly good positives to take away in the overall. But we'll get to that in a moment. For those who are not aware, The Shadow has, to date, I believe, something in the neighborhood of seven film appearances, which is a total that Batman will only equal whenever the next Batman film comes out. Just for those of you (laughs) who uh, call The Shadow an obscure character, uh, he's appeared in film a whole lot. Now, granted, some of those feature film efforts were, in fact, television pilots that were smashed together and re-edited and released as full film appearances, but to be honest, even before that happened, which has happened twice, by the way, um, there were already a number of shadow film efforts that were full and and intended as full feature-length film adaptations of The Shadow. Some are much more faithful than others. I would say the vast majority of the original shadow efforts are not terribly faithful. But the two exceptions, I think, are, of course, the spectacular 1940 The Shadow serial starring Victor Jory, which was actually, they consulted with Walter B. Gibson on that one and decided, like, really, we're going to make this one a fairly faithful effort, and it's a bit more action-packed, I would say, than most Shadow Pulps would be, but if you if you consider that you're watching, like, a Theodore Tinsley version of The Shadow, I would say the 1940 serial is pretty close to the mark, but The Shadow Strikes in terms of a of an adaptation that really 
at least in some ways, captures the way that Walter B. Gibson tended to structure his murder mystery plots, and there was a lot of misdirection, and the shadow had a way of being one step ahead of the crooks and sort of divining their motives, and really the idea of the shadow as a, as a proper criminologist. I would say that The Shadow Strikes is probably the most faithful to date, maybe even more faithful to the Victor Jory serial, at least in that lone regard. And I must say, like, right outright, to give some background, um, this was made by Grand National Pictures, not exactly an outfit of extraordinary repute. <laughs> Grand National Pictures was... Uh, considered to belong to something called Poverty Row Filmmaking, which is a cutesy, clever, fairly charitable way of saying they were the baron of the B-films. They were utterly, utterly forgettable. They were essentially a cinematic sausage factory, and they would, in fact, reuse a lot of sets uh, for their films, including this one. If you watch a lot of Grand National Pictures, there are settings and so forth and, and lighting setups and everything that you can actually recognize from previous Grand National Pictures. So do not confuse this with a high-budget filmic affair. Not that I think you would be at a terribly high risk of doing so, given that there is essentially one musical cue in the entire film, and it's at the very beginning. <laughs> There's not a whole lot in the way of an effects budget. Certainly there's not much of a costume budget, although I would argue that it actually kind of works in this film's favor a little bit. Um, probably the biggest gripe that Shadow fans have about this film is that the Shadow is not in it. He's only in the film at the very beginning and the very end. Nothing to it. Quit patting yourself on the back. Sorry to interrupt, boys. The shell. Rod LaRoque only dons the famous Inverness cape, which is pretty cool. That's actually accurate to the pulps. That's how he is described in the stories. He doesn't have the scarf, although they do get one rather glaring inaccuracy on the screen, and that is that he's wearing a fedora instead of a slouch hat, but we've seen a lot of cases where that's unfortunately something they carry over. I don't know where they pluck that from. I guess because detectives of the era wore fedoras. They just assume the Shadow wore one, too. They even make that mistake in the Victor Jory uh, film serial, which is considered fairly accurate. But I, I have to say, of all the gripes against this film, I think as more time goes on, I think that's probably the weakest. Because for those who are not aware, this is more or less a direct adaptation of the Shadow, Walter B. Gibson, pulp story, The Ghost of the Manor. Something you could probably divine just by watching the film. It does, believe it or not, the script does feel fairly Walter B. Gibsonian. It does actually carry forward some of the same sort of atmosphere that Walter B. Gibson's pulps do. The mystery itself is really not bad. It's not scripted terribly. Uh, I've never been a man to let my imagination get the better of me, but uh, I have a feeling that my life is in jeopardy. Who knows the contents of that will? To my knowledge, you're nobody. With the exception of my niece and nephews, I want a clause written that Marcia is to be completely disinherited if she marries Warren Rose. Oh. 
if there's one big point in its favor, it's that it is adapted in 100% earnest fashion. There's really not a whole lot of winks and nods and lame attempts at comedy. There is one quasi sort of comedic character, but I wouldn't say he's ever Jar Jar Binksian. He definitely every now and then will say something where you're kind of like, ah, oh, it's not really consistent with the tone of the film, but... In the overall, this character who is kind of standing in for Harry Vincent, uh, essentially the Shadow's chauffeur and his only assistant. You have to have some kind of assistant when when the Shadow is involved, usually. And that's essentially the role that this character plays. Honestly, aside from that, it's played 100% straight. All the characters are fulfilling their essential roles. It's obviously necessarily condensed because the film is barely over an hour long, which is another point in its favor. It's just a nice speedy murder mystery just like the pulp stories that it's adapted from now for the points of divergence (laughs) uh lamont granston (laughs) i don't don't know why they changed that name (laughs) lamont granston is a lawyer cum criminologist in this film and they add in a rather hilarious avenging the death of my father plot Which, keep in mind, this is 1937, a full two years before the debut of Batman. Hmm, I wonder if Bill Finger saw this movie. Gosh, I wonder. I'm sorry I never knew your father, sir. He was a great lawyer, Henriks. Every racketeer in the country feared him. That's why they got him. But you're carrying on, sir. Oh, after a fashion, but... I'd give anything in the world if I could match that bullet. But essentially, the shadow in this film has Bruce Wayne's motivation. His father was also a very famous lawyer, and he was murdered. And he has the the murder bullet, and he is on a quest to discover what gun this bullet came from. Which is kind of cool. I like the way that it's written. At the very end of the film, we sort of bring that full circle, but I'll get to that in a moment. And so we sort of set the stage with Lamont Granston, although... In the actual audio, he is called Lamont Cranston, so I have no idea what happened here. If somebody at the ADR for Grand National Pictures misheard... And thank you, Mr. Cranston. We're introduced to that, and it's odd that they introduce that element because you don't really need it for the purposes of the shadow. The idea here is that the shadow has only popped up a few times. It's sort of assumed that the specter of the shadow has been haunting the criminal underworld. What happened? The shadow stepped in. I'd just like to know who he is. And yet it's simultaneously suggested that he only dons this alter ego when it has something to do with the murder of his father through dialogue. So very, very strange and even more strange due to the fact that it's really not referenced again until the very end of the film and has absolutely zero bearing on the plot. I guess the writers just sort of felt like, okay, we've got to give him some kind of psychological motivation uh, for why he would fight crime. Find that kind of interesting. Keeping in mind, I believe this was right around the time when Walter B. Gibson would have actually been revealing that the shadow was in fact not Lamont Cranston, but was Kent Allard. As an interesting bit of trivia, that issue of The Shadow Magazine was published in August, and this film came out in October, and while it's a B picture and probably didn't take that long to shoot, they were probably filming it even before that issue came out, so 
kind of interesting. And Walter B. Gibson has said since then that he more or less decided to finally settle on what the Shadow's identity was because he did not want the pulp version of the character to be confused with the radio version of the character. And one has to assume the filmic version of the character probably uh, would have fallen down in that same category if it had been out at the time. Rod LaRoque has to be talked about here because he was one of the foremost silent film stars and The Shadow Strikes was one of the first movies that he did to sort of stake his reputation as a film star in sound as well. As many people know, the transition to the talkies for a lot of these silent film stars was none too easy. Go watch the film noir classic Sunset Boulevard if you don't believe me, but Rod LaRoque encountered those challenges, but he actually weathered the transition with some class and some grace, and I have to say, Although he isn't always tonally consistent, and I think a lot of that is honestly down to the script, and while he certainly doesn't have a shadow voice as such, he does have a way of transforming when he has the hat and cape on, and honestly, as a casting for Lamont Cranston, physically and in terms of his voice and so forth, not actually that bad. He has the right, you know, the sort of widow's peak hairline. I mean, I guess you could sort of nitpick about the pencil mustache and so forth. But he's really not bad, at least as a Lamont Cranston, or Granston, if you prefer, <laughs> casting decision. You could have done a lot worse, given the available film stars of this era. He has sort of that weird, sort of austere, high-class kind of demeanor, even though he's only intended to be a lawyer in this. I hear the shadow's been making it pretty tough for some of the boys. You evidently get first-hand information. He, of course, impersonates someone. I guess if there's one missed opportunity, it's that there wasn't more attempt to put him in disguise a bit more. He doesn't necessarily need to be the shadow the entire time, but you could have kept the audience a little bit more visually invested if he had some outfit changes. But again, I think given Grand National Pictures' budget and their reputation as a B-movie purveyor, I do believe that probably had more to do with budgetary strictures. Like I said, there is not one note of music over the course of this film except in the very opening credits. And at the very end, of course. And I'm pretty sure some of that music is recycled from previous productions. <laughs> These guys were like the canon films of their day, folks. It's a shame. You know, this was a really hot property at the time. The Shadow Magazine was one of the top-selling magazines, certainly in the pulp sphere, uh, in the late 30s. And the radio show only made it even more popular. The Orson Welles Show was a big hit. Obviously, this was meant as an attempt to exploit that. It's just a shame Street and Smith didn't wait for somebody a little bit more reputable with a bit more of a budget to come along and do a proper adaptation. As we would learn later, Orson Welles, after a while of doing like really high-class art films and so forth and sort of getting wearied of that and wearied of Hollywood in general... He sort of approached Walter B. Gibson and a number of other people and told them, hey, you know, I kind of want to do a film version of The Shadow. And one only wonders what a film version of The Shadow directed and I guess presumably starring Orson Welles. This would have been in the late 40s, early 50s when he was still relatively thin and young looking. You know, think the third man era Orson Welles playing The Shadow on screen or at least 
directing the shadow on screen and you get an idea of how interesting this probably would have been but sadly that was a road never taken uh, for whatever reason i believe the rights at that time had been purchased by monogram pictures who made the trilogy of the shadow returns behind the mask and the missing lady which are really not bad. They're actually not bad for what they are, but they're certainly not to be confused with a faithful adaptation of The Shadow. But we, of course, will talk about those films at a slightly later date. The plot is pretty simple. There is an aging, wealthy financier who is sorting out his will and is determined not to give his money to his daughter if she marries someone and then he gets shot through a window and he's dead. It's kind of an, a proto-Agatha Christie plot, essentially. It's almost a and-then-there-were-none sort of plot, except only two people really are killed over the course of the film. Well, that's not true, I guess four, uh, technically, <laughs> but it being a Walter B. Gibson plot, you can sort of predict it's not all going to be exactly what it seems, which honestly puts this plot slightly above a lot of the crime pictures of this era in that there is a pretty nice twist at the very end, although it isn't very well directed, acted. I mean, really, the problem here is not so much with the script or even the actors necessarily. It's really just execution all around. Sometimes line readings don't quite connect. Some of the actors don't seem completely invested. And needless to say, the budget is more than slightly lacking. But I have to say, The Shadow Strikes, I, I believe I've softened over the years on this one. I think if you had sort of just tweaked one or two things here and there. You probably could have salvaged this production and made it just a bit better, but honestly, as a first film for The Shadow, particularly considering the era where pulp heroes and vigilantes and so forth were not a very popular topic of serious film, like, if you can imagine how long it took for us to finally get comic book movies that were handled in a relatively earnest fashion, I mean, really, it wasn't until 2009 with uh, Iron Man, where we were actually getting, like, panel-for-panel panel adaptations of comic book movies. Before that, it was like, the best we could hope for was maybe Tim Burton's Batman, and even that took some fairly dramatic license. If you consider the era in which it was produced, this could have been a heck of a lot worse. Obviously, we would get better from The Shadow, but really, as a first film, it's not half bad. And I would have to say... The adherence to the pulp material and at least the core idea of the plot is somewhat admirable. It does feel at least like a distant cousin of Walter B. Gibson film. It doesn't look good. There's not nearly enough shadow. I have no idea what Rod LaRocque is doing with his shadow voice at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> he sounds ridiculous. Hey, this was either than I thought. Let's get going. Stay where you are, gentlemen. Drop that gun. Leave that paper in this house. Uh, but Rod LaRocque, not a bad Lamont Cranston. Really not a bad shadow physically. If he had just worked on the voice and maybe thrown in a laugh here or there, he could have been as good as Victor Jory. I, it's unfortunate because there's kind of a missed opportunity. I have no doubt in my mind Rod LaRocque could have done it if he wanted to, but I think he probably was one of those actors who's sort of like, oh God, I'm kind of slumming it here, and probably wasn't taking it terribly seriously. So folks, if you want to watch The Shadow Strikes, it's been available on DVD for some time, both as a single film and 
in a collection of shadow films of somewhat dubious legal standing. I'm not exactly sure if those are completely above board, but to be honest, this is a film from the 30s. I don't know if the rights were even renewed. I do, however, know that as of this recording, you can go on Amazon Prime and watch this film and a film that we should now talk about just a little bit because I'm not going to review it. This is, of course, about prominent firsts in The Shadow's career, and of course, this would be a sequel to the first film. That is International Crime, and this film apparently was somewhat successful, at least moderately successful, because it actually got a follow-up. A very strange follow-up that was heavily reworked. It incorporated, somewhat awkwardly, the character of Margot Lane. <laughs> a lot of people have speculated that The Shadow Strikes was influenced by the Orson Welles incarnation of the radio show, but that seems somewhat unlikely given the time frame. I'm not sure exactly when Orson Welles started on radio, but this film had to have been in development for at least a few months, and I don't see how the Orson Welles version of the radio show honestly could have influenced it all that much, but you can honestly see a huge influence from the now massively successful radio show of The Shadow, especially the Orson Welles incarnation, in that we're now incorporating a character who is clearly meant to be a stand-in for Margot Lane. I don't know if they couldn't get the rights to the character, but she has a different name. That name is, of course, the rather absurd Phoebe Lane <laughs> instead of Marco Lane. I don't know what's going on. I'll kind of stop there because I don't want to give too much away. It's a really odd film in a lot of ways in that it's sort of closer to the pulps and farther away from the pulps at the same time. And tonally, it is a much more whimsical film. It sort of presaged the versions of The Shadow that we would have going into the 40s with the sort of Kane Richmond version and so forth, where it gets a little bit cartoony and starts playing with some other things that are only featured in the radio. But International Crime, I want to do that one justice. I want to do an entire episode about that and something else. So in lieu of doing an actual proper review, I'll, I'll stop it there. International crime, interesting to check out, but I would say The Shadow Strikes works a lot better as a film in general. As my fellow agents of The Shadow will recall, the theme of this inaugural season of The Shadowcast is The Birth of a Dark Legend. And of course, that title refers to notable firsts in the history of Pulp's immortal crime fighter, The Shadow. And what could be a more notable first than the very first episode of his most famous and successful incarnation on old-time radio, voiced by Orson Welles in 1937's first episode, Death House Rescue. There are myriad accounts, many of which overtly conflict with one another, of how Orson Welles came by the shadow role. There are even some people who claim, rather absurdly, that he auditioned for the role. That seems not accurate, given that Orson Welles was given a number of concessions in order to accept the role, such as not having to be present for rehearsals. We know that for an absolute fact. Announcer, Ken Roberts. Orson was very, very busy at that time, and it seemed almost impossible for him to take on such an assignment, but uh, great concessions were made so that he would be able to take it on. Among the concessions, well, perhaps the biggest, of course, was that he would not have to attend rehearsal, that uh, the program would be prepared and almost completed, except for his appearance, and when the moment came that they would be ready for him, they were prepared to send for him at the theater where he would be rehearsing his own company, the Mercury Theater, and he would come down in a 
chauffeur-driven limousine or a taxi cab to the studio where we were working. We were at the RCA studio on 24th Street between uh, 3rd Avenue and Lexington Avenue in New York, and Orson was working at the Princess Theater with his Mercury Group. The Princess Theater was on 39th Street and Broadway. So it wasn't too big a jump for Orson, but he was able to make it. He would hop into his taxi cab or limo, as I said, appear at our studio in about five minutes, walk in, pick up a script, go to the microphone, and start to perform the show. The show was recorded, of course, and that's why we were able to do it in that fashion. It was great, and I didn't know how it ended, you know, because part of the deal was I was very busy running the theater was that I wouldn't have to rehearse. So I would just come on, they'd hand me the script, I'd go on the air, and they'd get me into this pit with the cobras or whatever it is, and then uh, my secretary, played by Agnes Moorhead, would break in and say, Lamont, or something, you know, and I'd come on. It was always a big surprise to me how I had the whole thing solved. It, it added interest, as far as I was concerned. <laughs> Most of the people from Orson Welles' Mercury Theater, which had only just been formed in 1937, were actually actors on the Shadow Radio Show. More or less, he wanted to fund his stage productions. He was, of course, working for the Federal Theater Project, which has a rather sketchy history, but we won't go into that. And I believe he agreed to be the Shadow in order to fund some of his productions. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt famously quipped that Orson Welles was the only man he ever saw pay money into a federal program. (laughs) So he was actually looking to make his stage productions even more elaborate, and of course the federal government could only afford so much. But Orson Welles himself, he's often sort of portrayed, I believe misportrayed in the media, as sort of a dilettante. He did the shadow just to fund those productions and didn't really care about the character. Complete nonsense. As I referenced earlier, he not only seemed to appreciate the character and talked about it in very, very fond and glowing terms in subsequent decades, as you can hear in many of his interviews. Is it true that you were the voice of the shadow you originally? You bet I was. That's true? You bet. And what a welcome you, $85 a week that was. Can you remember the words? Uh, what is it? Um, uh, now, who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows crime does not pay. And then that laugh, you remember? Yeah. All the kids in America could do it better than I could. I just got, <laughs> I just got a few goose pimples as you did that. But he actually pursued briefly an attempt to make a film version of The Shadow, possibly starred by and certainly being directed and or written by himself. So he clearly had some affection for this material and for this character. In the late 1940s, Wells himself contemplated a film version of The Shadow. Wells did consider making a film of The Shadow amongst various other projects which seemed to somehow come from his past. Uh, he kind of reached this tremendous peak with Citizen Kane, obviously, and then almost as if he wanted to... Uh, Citizen Kane had been almost too serious for him. He then tried to spread himself back out again into all sorts of popular entertainments, magic shows... Um, comedy shows on the radio, uh, you know, he was sub for Jack Benny quite often, and he was always looking for whimsical, comical, melodramatic material. He'd really considered so many things, and The Shadow was just one of those many things that, that he, and I think he, he's right, it might well have made a rather marvelous film um, in his hands. 
But there were already connections between the Shadow and Orson Welles before this. One of the members of his famous Mercury Theater group was none other than Frank Reddick, who had been the Shadow for the majority of the 1930s ever since James Licurto had abandoned the role and been recast. And so Frank Reddick would have already known all the people who were doing the Shadow. I imagine that's probably how the connection was made. But it should be stated that there were already several versions of the Shadow on the airwaves, but what they all had in common was that the Shadow was nothing more than a ghostly narrator, a bit of a gimmick that had been ripped off by a lot of different shows since then, but the Shadow had since sort of seemed to have run his course on radio and had been more or less discarded. In fact, there is some suggestion that there might have been an attempt to bring the actual Pulp Vigilante version of the Shadow to radio on some sort of a local radio station basis. This was not uncommon, by the way. They would test market things in sort of a local region before they brought it to a national stage. Uh, certainly syndication at that time didn't work the same way that it works today. But if you have physical copies of the original Pulp magazines, you can actually grab the June 1st, 1936 issue of the Shadow magazine. And there's a letter to the editor that I find kind of eyebrow raising. Now, granted, this is just from a reader. They could have been utterly mistaken. But they seem to be under the impression that the Pulp version of the Shadow had been attempted in radio previously, and they simply hadn't pursued it. But I'll now quote from this letter to the editor. Uh, quote, Too many people look upon the Shadow as a ghost or a villain. Some think he is a master criminal. Only those who read his exploits know he is the master crime fighter extraordinaire. Why not do more advertising? Show the people who the Shadow is meant to be. Show them that he is to be looked up to, not scowled and scorned upon. Tell all the Shadow Club members to tell their friends and relatives the Shadow's purpose. And Last but not least, if the shadow ever goes on the radio again, please tell them to put the shadow in the stories, not just talking in between. Put his agents in the stories, too. Now, here's the interesting part. I hear you did this about three years ago. Why not again? Get the people more acquainted with the shadow, and you will get more members in the club and more readers of the magazine. If you do this, please let me know, as I hope I have not tried in vain." Unquote. Very, very interesting. I don't know how accurate it is. You know, again, it's a reader. Probably a lot of the readers would have been juvenile or teenagers. So who knows? He could have been misinformed. Could have just been one of those many rumors of that time. There was no internet at the time. Thank God. But that does bring us to the episode itself, Death House Rescue. Fairly infamous. I believe for a lot of years, it was an incomplete episode. It was one we couldn't seem to find fully intact, but there is a full audio version of the episode in question available for you to purchase and or listen to now. Pretty much all the standard elements of the Shadow Radio Show are here, which is a testament to what an immediate hit it actually was. Famously, a lot of these were recorded ahead of time and, of course, it was sort of canned. The opening and closing little stings from the shadow are not, of course, voiced by Orson Welles, but by Frank Reddick. <laughs> Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? <laughs> The Shadow Knows. You got Orson Welles as The Shadow. You got Agnes Moorhead as Margot Lane, who, of course, today would be famous as Endora from Bewitched when she was uh, an older woman, but was a very famous actress in her day and, of course, would star 
in Citizen Kane and a number of Orson Welles productions. She was a part of the Mercury Theater group, along with a lot of the people in this. And uh, another shadow actor, believe it or not, makes his debut in this, but he's not playing the shadow. And that is the man who would ultimately succeed Orson Welles as the shadow and Lamont Cranston, and that is one Bill Johnstone. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. <laughs> and probably most of you would know him if you had watched the original black and white version of Titanic from the 1950s. Now, it should be noted this is one of only a few episodes from the first season that were written in consultation with the Shadows creator, Walter B. Gibson. He enjoyed the company of Bierstadt, the man who actually wrote the script, Edward Hale Bierstadt, and uh, seemed to have given him a lot of respect. Walter B. Gibson has spoken very fondly of him. That was when I got on the first script with Ed Bierstadt the man that did Warden Laws. I went over to see him, and he's sitting there with a, stuff, a stack of about a dozen shadows and has been reading them. And he says, this stuff is good. And we had a very good time together. I read over the script, and the script he had was fine. I said, whatever changes there are, whatever they want to do with it, that's great. I said, let's go ahead with more. There was actually some adherence to the source material. I think one of the big things that you'll notice is the shadow has a much higher emphasis on hypnosis in this episode. In fact, there is a sequence where he actually probes uh, Paul Gordon, who is being played by Bill Johnstone. He probes his mind, searching for the fatal clue that will save him from the death house. I'm going to think with your mind. I don't know what you mean. Don't try to understand. Just do as I tell you. I want you to concentrate, Gordon. Fix your mind on everything that happened that day. Make mental pictures. And you can even hear it in Orson Welles' delivery of the shadow. He sounds sort of somnolent. He sounds as if he's like half asleep. And I think that was intended by Orson Welles. He, he ultimately would eschew that delivery after he realized this wasn't the case. Um, but he sort of has a hypnotic kind of delivery. And I think that as the hypnotic elements began to be de-emphasized in the shadow character over the course of the first and second season, he slowly dropped that. Interestingly enough, by the time Bill Johnstone played the character, that was pretty much gone entirely, along with a number of other elements uh, in the shadow character. But here it's kind of interesting that you've still got that a little bit. The plot is pretty straightforward. There's a young man whose baby is sick, and he doesn't know how he's going to make ends meet, and so he gets roped into a scheme. <laughs> it's hard to relate to the guy when he's this dim-witted, but some guys ask him, hey, do you have a car? Is it really fast? Could you stand outside this building and wait for us? <laughs> Who with an IQ above 15 is going to take that job? But by God, he takes it, and uh, the shadow sort of tells him that he's going to be okay, he knows that he's innocent, and he knows that there's some crucial fact that must be extant that can absolve him of responsibility. Orson Welles' delivery here vacillates between sort of a weird kind of sleepwalking, almost like somnambulant kind of delivery to something much more menacing. It's important to note he didn't quite have the laugh down here, although he does get a few doozies in. If the police find that fingerprint, you'll burn, Lefty. Just the way young Gordon's going to burn tonight. Goodbye, Lefty. 
Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That sounds pretty good in places, but it took him a while. By the by, the end of Orson Welles' tenure, the shadow laugh was there. Right, he had it all together. You listen to some of the episodes from 1938, and it's bone chilling. But early on here, he doesn't quite have it down. It's a tough laugh to nail down. I speak from experience. It's like you almost have to add a sneer to it. It's not a normal laugh. It's a mocking laugh. It's not a joker laugh. It's nothing like that. It's um, not full-throated. You almost have to pull back a little bit instead of just bellowing out a big booming laugh. When I hear really bad radio recreations of The Shadow, the common problem with all the voice actors of The Shadow is they completely misinterpret how you're supposed to laugh as him, including, to be honest, Alec Baldwin kind of got it wrong. Um, could, couldn't get that laugh down. And unfortunately, Orson Welles falls prey to that phenomenon here just a little bit. But otherwise, he's absolutely exceptional. He's magnetic. He's got that basso profundo sort of sound to his voice there's no one in that corner only a shadow (laughs) the crucial eureka moment arrives when the shadow probes into paul gordon's subconscious and discovers that lefty a criminal name which will actually recur a number of times over the course of the show apparently this guy's a career criminal because he shows up (laughs) as late as the 1940s you think the shadow would finally off this guy but uh, it turns out that because he's left-handed when they were making their getaway he was using his gun with his left hand and he had to adjust the mirror and he did it without gloves and so he finds that crucial thing that is going to absolve paul gordon and it's interesting it works and actually there's a moment near the end of the episode where there's a bit of radio magic because this is the first episode of the shadow you don't know what take they're gonna have on the character quite and we get really close to the death house and paul gordon's about to be fried and he starts saying things like but the voice told me i would be safe and why hasn't anyone called and we you almost think they're gonna go for like He's crazy, you know what I mean? Like he was just hearing a voice in his cell. And uh, and then, of course, the shadow saves the day. I'm sorry. If I go in that door, I'm gone. It'll be too late then. Take him in, men. No, 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 wait. Oh, where are you? Where's that voice? Where did he go? Please come back. Warden, warden. Wait a minute, men. Well, what is it? Warden, wait. The governor's on the phone. He says stop. It's a fantastic episode, but it's made even more interesting by the fact that if you own Walter B. Gibson's The Shadow Scrapbook, he actually prints an earlier draft of the script, and who knows, this may have actually gotten pretty down to the wire in terms of this version actually making it to radio airwaves, but this is actually significant because for two major reasons, actually. Number one, Margot Lane is not in it, suggesting that she was a somewhat 11th hour Edition. Now, we've heard many, many times why Margot Lane was added to the shadow, and it makes perfect logistical sense. You needed vocal contrast. If he had, if the shadow was going to have a partner and he has a, a sort of bass male voice, then it stands to reason so that you can easily distinguish the two of them. You need someone with a equally contrasting voice, someone on the opposite end of the sonic spectrum. And so who better than a female voice, a higher 
sort of female voice. And so Margot Lane had to be added. But the interesting fact is Margot Lane did not simply step into the role. She replaced an existing character from the pulps, none other than Harry Vincent, who we talked about in our review of The Living Shadow, the very first issue of The Shadow magazine. And if you read this earlier draft, Harry Vincent actually steps in and talks to Grace, Paul Gordon's wife, who is distraught, of course, because her, her, her boy toy is being sent to the gas chamber. <laughs> so, But it's interesting, there's a whole se- sequence here that actually did make it to the radio waves that you can listen to with Margot Lane. And if you just imagine Harry Vincent saying these lines, you more or less have an impression of how Harry Vincent would have functioned on the radio version of the show. Oh, God, please help me. Help me. I don't know what to do. Yes? Who is it? My name is Margot Lane. I have a message for you, Mrs. Gordon. You're not a reporter, are you? No, I'm a friend. I've come to help. But there's more divergence here. Uh, If you read over this... I believe the original script version had been lost. There had been certain pages that had been lost. And so Walter B. Gibson himself finished the missing fragments. So it's cool. This is almost like a Walter B. Gibson version of the first episode of Death House Rescue. And I have to say it has a number of things over the final version. Not that the first episode is bad. But there's a really cool introductory sequence that's a little bit more superhero-ish. Where you get to see the shadow in the context of what he does on a nightly basis. A very Batman-esque sequence, keeping in mind that Batman had not debuted yet where there are two criminals and they're doing the dirt and whatever, and all of a sudden there's this blood-curdling laugh, and they say, what is that? Who's over there? And, and of course, Orson Welles says, only a shadow. <laughs> right? It's brilliant. It's classic shadow stuff, and you wish that they had filmed that, but instead they film a weird kind of foreshadowing sequence where the shadow lets Paul Gordon know that he's going to be okay. You're in the death house. Charged with murder. Yes, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. But nobody knows it. Take courage, Gordon. The shadow knows. <laughs> yeah, there's more points of divergence than just Harry Vincent not being in the script, but more or less the rest of it functions as normal. There's some slight dialogue changes in the sequence between Paul Gordon and Grace, them talking about their child's illness and so forth. Uh, they added the sequence, of course, where Margot Lane talks about Lamont Cranston's war against crime. They actually say outright that he's been fighting evil for five years. Lamont, give it up. Give what up, my dear? Drinking coffee? I'm serious, Lamont Cranston. When I foolishly let you know that... Do you remember what you said? It will be exactly five years next week. But there's still so much to do, Margot. Well, then let somebody else do it. Kind of cool. I don't know if that's a reference to the radio, actually, but um, really, really cool stuff. In short, this is the episode that started it all guys and i have to say there's a whole school of thought that the shadow radio show was only good with orson wells in the seat of the shadow now it's not one i agree with i think the writing matured a bit later some of the performances from some of the other actors to me are definitive i am more in the brett morrison camp than a lot of other i think brett morrison was a great sort of middle point between bill johnstone who i also think is really good and Orson Welles, he had sort of the gravitas and the seriousness 
of Orson Welles, but he could also have a bit of the levity. And nobody beats his laugh. I'm sorry, absolutely nobody beats <laughs> the Brett Morrison laugh. I mean, it's absolutely haunting. It'll just reverberate through your brain. Um, and I don't, I don't think Bill Johnstone, while he was very, very good, and there's some great episodes with Johnstone. He, I don't know. He never quite nailed that laugh. It was just a little bit. He got the sneering part part right, but there was just no projection to it. You know, it wasn't quite the. The, the thing is, the shadow is a villain who does good things. He's really evil visited against evil to a large degree. So it, basically, in every other way, he's got to sound evil. He just has to. It has to scare criminals. And I don't think Bill Johnstone ever quite got that. He just sounded like he was laughing at a really sarcastic joke or something. I should also say before we move on and end the episode that um, there's a number of introductions that I referenced earlier. One of the other ones is that uh, Jeanette Nolan, who would later play Margot Lane sort of in an interim role. Jeanette Nolan is in this episode as Grace. She would step in as Margot Lane when Marjorie Anderson sadly died very young, I believe of throat cancer. It's interesting. The shadow kind of had this shadow family. And when that's, I think that's why when Bill Johnstone stepped into the role, it was like, okay, fine. You know, it's a, it's a voice we know. And he did a pretty good job. Needless to say, the Orson Welles incarnation of the shadow was an absolute phenomenon, not only with Orson Welles, but with all the actors who would ultimately don the slouch hat, some of whom did physically in the studio. Orson Welles was not one of them. He never had a live audience. It ran from 1937 to 1954, folks. You do the math on that. That is a long time for anything to be running, whether on radio or on television. And it still runs on radio today, folks. Of course, there are podcasts now that talk about it and radio recreations, some of which I have made myself and I'll make a few more in the future if I uh, have a little help in editing them. But uh, I mean, folks, it is an absolute watershed, really in Western entertainment culture. So much flows from this. And there's no question if the shadow hadn't broke it big in terms of the pop culture phenomenon that he is, if no anybody knows the shadow in the modern day, there is a nine out of 10 chance that they know the immortal catchphrase, who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men, the shadow knows, right? And all of that comes from the radio. It, that's the original incarnation of the character. One of the top rated programs of its day, the top rated program on Sundays, like pretty much for the duration of its run, and one of the highest rated programs on radio for the entire time it was on the air. I mean, really, really crazy stuff, how popular this was. I mean, the rise and fall of The Shadow really mirrors the rise and fall of old time radio and the pulps. And if, honestly, if that's what took it down, that says a lot for the enduring quality of The Shadow. Death House Rescue, folks, highly recommend it. It's, of course, available on YouTube, or you can purchase the CDs, whichever you prefer. So, folks, until next time. <laughs> As you sow evil, so shall you reap evil. Crime does not pay. A shadow knows. Ha, 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 ha.